From the great state of Ohio, Buckeye Firearms Association presents Keep and Bear Radio, fighting for Second Amendment rights, calling out media lies, and telling the gun grabbers to come and take it. Now, Keep and Bear Radio. Before 2008, some people argued that the Second Amendment was the red-headed stepchild of the Constitution, and that, unlike other rights, it was merely a collective right, an outmoded concept related only to old-fashioned militias. Then the U.S. Supreme Court took up the case of District of Columbia versus Heller and ruled that, in fact, the Constitution protects an individual right to keep and bear arms. That's what we're going to talk about on this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. I'm Dean Reek, Executive Director of Buckeye Firearms Association, and I'm joined by Dick Heller. Yes, that Dick Heller, the man whose 2008 Supreme Court victory changed gun law forever. Hi, Dick. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Dean. Dick Heller here. Yep. Glad to be here on your podcast. And I don't even live in Ohio, and I'm a proud member of the Buckeye Firearms Association. A whole lot more Buckeyes ought to be members. Actually, more people around the country since you're you're so effective in your legislation there. Thanks, Dick. I appreciate that. You know, you and I have known each other for quite a while now. Um, I remember us going to gun shows, working in booths at NRA conventions, and you have attended some of our events here. In fact, you were a keynote speaker uh, some some years ago. But your involvement in gun rights goes way back. Uh, I would say over thirty years. How did you get started? What what was the what was <laughs> the original? Was, I think thirty two years to get to the Supreme Court. Yeah, I think. So, I mean, is it true? I I heard a story that. You got started in all this because your house in Washington, D.C. was actually shot up back in the 70s. That was a motivating factor. But when I moved in on approximately July the 4th, 1976, an interesting uh, bicentennial date, huh? Um, A couple of uh, weeks later, I found, discovered that... uh, I could be a gun owner. There were no gun laws in D.C. And I said, heck, why not? Uh, And Matt Dillon was my favorite uh, uh, gun smoke character, of course, and back in the black and white days. So I went I went across uh, state line to Maryland, uh, bought a gun, brought it back into D.C. And uh, now if you want to buy a gun or anything, ammo or anything, you have to go across the river to America to Virginia because DC, even though what we've accomplished and we now have concealed carry due to uh, door opening the door for Brian Wren's um, concealed carry case, they still have no gun stores in DC. Now they, you said you, you, so you moved to DC before they had a gun law. My understanding is that in 1976, that's when they passed a gun ban. And according to what I've read, they, it basically banned all guns. It banned handguns. And if you had rifles or shotguns, you had to lock them up or unload them, disassemble them. What was that like? I mean, how did that actually go down when they passed that? Well, 
nobody knows what goes on behind closed doors. Uh, anybody that put gun locks on their guns uh, inside their own house might as well just throw their gun in the trash or expect to use it as a missile or a club. But uh, even the, the whole Supreme Court laughed at that. Uh, but Democrats don't care. They just said, well, you have your guns. We have control after the after the decision. And I said, oh, here I thought we won something. I don't know what we just lost. What did you do? You had a, a firearm in your house. And so when D.C. banned them, what did you do? I had a brother living in um, Maryland, the Soviet Maryland. So there were no restrictions back in that time period either, so to speak. As a matter of fact, I had called the police station a few years before after I discovered something called gun freedom. And I called the police station near my house. I think I was living in Maryland at the time. And they said, yep, you can walk down the streets of Silver Spring with a gun on your hip. It just cannot be loaded. And I said, oh, that's kind of cool. And then you started noticing things in the newspaper around the country where people were starting to restrict Second Amendment rights. And, uh, and then I finally moved into D.C., and then that was the trigger. I think they passed the law in 75, and it was to go into effect in September of 76, just months after I moved in. So you, you took your, your gun, gave it to your brother, and... So then you didn't have any firearms. Now, when, when did you become a police officer in D.C.? I became a cop about 1992 as a contract security. And uh, you have to pass background checks and economic checks and criminal history and, and everything. And uh, clean as a whistle, veteran, paratrooper. I still couldn't have a gun in 1992. And then... I became a special police officer, which means I carry a gun, and I worked at uh, one of the Supreme Court buildings, but I was still unworthy to have a firearm of my own in my house. So you carried a gun, but you couldn't have the gun at your house. I mean, what did you do? Did you have to lock it up at work, or how did that, uh, you know? Well, it was a company gun, so you don't have access to it when you're off shift. So you had to just lock it up in a, in a safe or something, and then you accessed it when you went to work. Sure. The, the armorer issued and withdrew your firearm. Wow. I mean, what did that make you feel like, Dick? I mean, there you are. You, you pass all these checks. The FBI does you know extensive background checks on you, like you said, economic checks, criminal checks, everything else. But they didn't trust you to have a gun in your house. I found out when you get your concealed carry license now, there are up to nine different uh, law enforcement agencies that can do that. They can apply to do a background check on you with if they have a mind to. And I used to be able to name all of them. I mean, it starts with uh, the uh, Capitol Police, the Supreme Court Police, Metropolitan Police Department, FBI, DIA, CIA, especially if you're military. I mean, they really want to go really way back and see if you ever, if they can find an excuse to reject you, but I'm clean as a whistle, of course, and I have to stay that way. So in 1997, I'm a little slow, but in 1997, my light bulb came on. I realized, I said, Hey, they're giving me a gun to protect them, but they won't let me 
have my own gun to protect me or my household or family. And my flight, my, my light bulb said, you know, that's a two tiered society. Don't we know someplace else like that called Russia? Yeah, they, they didn't tr- they they trusted you to carry a gun at work. They trusted you to be a police officer, uphold the law, but they didn't trust you to defend yourself in your own, in your own home. And I I mean I would I would think that that was really insulting. I w- I would be personally insulted by that. Well, it wasn't about trust, it was about control. They wanted to be the boss. And we're just going to show you who's boss here. That's their attitude. You have your guns, but we have control because we're still the boss. And then they came up with 16 different issues of why you could not have a gun. And we challenged those in Heller 2 and in Heller 3. And right in the middle of the appeal, which we would have won a lot of those 16 16 different issues, Sandy Hook happened and everybody just went zombie on litigation for the Second Amendment. So let's go back to the 70s when when you, you take your gun, you give it to your brother, you, you are defenseless in your home. What got you started back then? I mean, how did you start down this path of trying to win your rights back? I remember going to meetings with the city council or where there were city council members. There were open meetings before, I think before the court case. Yeah, around the year... 2004 or five, the city was really leaning on people. You will not have guns. And I remember uh, there is one city council member, Mary Shea, C-H-E. And she was at a public hearing and someone asked her, well, how, how with the, how could the city council deny people these constitutional rights? And she said, well, we had 12 members and we just wanted to make it unanimous to show how um, forceful we are against firearms. And interestingly, Mary Shea happened to be the constitutional law teacher at George Washington University. So at that point, I said, something's wrong in our college. And now, of course, all that is has blown, been blown wide open, be all the wokiness crap that they teach and critical race theory and 1619 and all the garbage, the lies, the falsehoods, fake media. So when did the case actually begin? Uh, a District of Columbia versus Heller. How did that really get off the ground? Well, interestingly, I had a, um, a uh, very good friend who was a combat veteran in Vietnam, and he was studying law Oh, he became a doctor and was studying uh, medicine while he was in the combat zone and going to school while he was in the military, came out, eventually became a very renowned doctor. But he had also afterwards been studying law for no particular reason, because the guys just happened to be brilliant, who unfortunately is no longer with us. And uh, we managed a short version of the story. We managed to get him into uh, Georgetown Law School on scholarship for the sole purpose of devising, he's the, we call him the architect of the 2008 case, just to devise the strategy. And, and he, he just outmaneuvered everybody else that was interested in a case. And they finally saw his particular strategy was the 
superior way to go. So he was the the architect of the case. And then we joined with Cato, and Cato has horsepower with lawyers and money to uh, promote a case. And you're talking about the Cato Institute? The Cato Institute, right. C-A-T-O Institute in D.C. I think they, they helped us get started, yes, because we started in the federal court in D.C., and then we lost five of the six plaintiffs. And I had gone down to try to register uh, my handgun and was denied. And I think it was Justice Urbina, I'll have to look that up, that said uh, uh, Heller has exhausted all administrative remedy. And when they say Heller, they're not talking about me, the dude. They're talking about the team, of course. I'm the dim bulb and the chandelier. (laughs) The, uh, The Heller team has exhausted all administrative remedies. Uh, Heller was harmed, therefore Heller has standing. And that got us really rolling uh, to the appellate court and then the Supreme Court. Now, you had the honor of actually being there when the decision came down. Is that right? I mean, you were in the room. I was in the courtroom, yeah. So so what did that feel like? Because Antonin Scalia wrote the opinion— and he read that opinion. Well, 20 minutes. See, back then, I did, didn't know very much. I hadn't studied and read mu- as much about the Second Amendment and had no opinion and very little knowledge. And it was a phenomenal case. So you're so stressed out, kind of, that and, and uneducated to follow that process as he was reading <laughs> when it was over. Two things. While we were waiting for the justices to mount the, uh, the uh, what do you call it? The, I call it the stage, uh, the bar. It was so quiet. If a mouse had run across the room, you could have heard it. You could hear your heart beating. It was unbelievable. And then when the justices came up, uh, I think there's like three steps up to the dais. There was this swishing noise that came out of nowhere. And to make a point, it was so silent in there that the justices' robes swishing against their clothes was a loud noise. That's what it was like. <laughs> he, when it finally, we, we got, we were, we were postponed three days in the last week. So we're the last day of the session for the 08 session. It was the last week, the last day, and there were two cases before us. We were the last case, and we thought, oh my gosh, we might, our decision might get put off till next year. So we had two false alarms and maybe a third one. And then finally, the case is announced, uh, oye, oye, and Scalia clears his throat and says, and you'll never see this anywhere. It didn't make it into the audio. I don't know why. But Scalia said, cleared his throat and said, we are not here today to erase the Second Amendment from the Constitution of the United States of America, very boldly. And I said, wow, we win something. (laughs) Wow. So you were, you were what, sitting in the front row? Uh, Close. Yeah. Actually, I had a a chair on the, uh, between the bar and the, uh, the justices. But that was given to uh, I gave that to somebody else, one of the other lawyers, third third chair lawyer. So when they came down with the ruling, 
what was the first thing you did? I mean, when you, when you left and, and you knew, wow, you know, my, I've won. My case has changed gun law forever. What was the first thing you did? <laughs> Went out and listened to everyone else pontificate. And, uh, I don't even re I'm, I must, I, I'm, I'm there in front of about 20 microphones. So I must've said something, but I have no idea what it was. You know, it, it probably wasn't even as deep as great day for America, great day for the second amendment probably wasn't even that deep. I, I have no idea. Maybe it's on record somewhere. I could, I'd, I'd like to be educated, but what I do remember is then the down on the street level sidewalk there, the, someone stuck a microphone in Fenty's face and, and he puckered up his mouth like he was sucking on a lemon. And he said, you have your guns. We have control. And the first thought that I remember from that day af after that was, oh, my God, what the hell just happened? And, and, and Fenty was who? You, I'm sorry, F Mayor Fenty. Uh. Surrounded by six football player looking cops in uniform. Full disclosure, I'm still a cop. I don't hate cops. But it was noticeable that he had his entourage of people with guns. And the day before, I couldn't own a gun, but he had six guns. So I assume that now that things are changed, you, uh, you have a firearm and you're able to enjoy your rights, even though you live in D.C.? Uh, I live in the, the Soviet Union of D.C. <laughs> that's why I say you have to go across the river to America to buy ammo. So even today, there are no, no gun stores in D.C.? Correct. No, no gun ranges? Correct. Wow. And it was so stringent. We have six, uh, maybe seven now, FFLs in D.C. At one time, there was a mere six, and none of them would do business uh, because it's just too draconian. So we had no FFL, which is unconstitutional. So the MPD had to take over FFL duties, which is, by the ATF law, illegal. Uh, so they found someone to come into town pretty quick after about a year. I mean, they were backed up like months just to get a gun registered, uh, which is unconstitutional itself. But that's what that's the way it is still. And we're working on that. So there's one FFL now in D.C. with a shop, but all they can do is transfers. Well, Dick, I appreciate your taking time out today to be on the podcast. I'm I honestly I'm honored to know you. And I want to thank you for what you've done for all Americans. I'm sure that, that that really wasn't what you were thinking when it all started out, but that's what it is. Uh, you will be remembered forever as the guy who changed gun rights. And I just want to thank you for taking time to talk to us today and tell us your story. Well, you know, there's more to that story. Uh, like I said, I was totally ignorant about Second Amendment uh, history until I started reading and we have to give accolades to uh, Stephen Halbrook and to Professor uh, Joyce Lee Malcolm and a couple of other people whose books I've read and studied and, and read English history just intensely. And come to find out, uh, one of my favorite books is From Magna Carta to the Constitution is the title, From Magna Carta to the Constitution. Now, interestingly, the Magna Carta had nothing to do with firearms. It was all about other civil rights, about habeas corpus and, and trial by jury 
and and um, undue fines, because at that time it was every citizen's duty to be armed in England. And let's see, there was a, a the the Bill of Rights of Englishmen was signed on February the twelfth, sixteen eighty nine. And by agreeing to come from England as princes that were born, prince and, and princesses that were born in England, but ruling over their fiefdom in France, by agreeing to come, return to England and to sign the Bill of Rights on February the 12th and run England as a Protestant state. And they signed the Bill of Rights, which in line seven said, no Protestants will be disarmed. They were then crowned as king and queen the very next day, and we know them as William and Mary, famous for the William and Mary College in um, in Williamsburg, uh, Virginia. Uh, but it goes back even further than that. Uh, it goes back to the years of um, Alfred the Great in the year 881 A.D. Uh, Alfred finally put on paper the laws that had been that the Englishmen had been living by in their tribes for hundreds of years. And they used the phrase from time immemorial, beyond people's memory, that everyone had a duty to be armed. And then that just idea just moved right forward. So our founding fathers had that to draw on to devise the Second Amendment. Well, Dick, thanks uh, for the history lesson. I've I've read at least one of Halbrook's books uh, when he surveys the Constitution and all the states and their constitutions. It's really a fascinating read. Yes. So uh, you're a part of history. <laughs> okay, champ. Thank you. That's all for this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. If you enjoyed the podcast, I urge you to subscribe. And please subscribe to the Buckeye Firearms Association newsletter at buckeyefirearms.org. If you'd like to become a member and support the work of BFA, go to joinbfa.org. Use the discount code podcast to get $10 off your membership. That's joinbfa.org. We'll see you next time on Keep and Bear Radio. Thank you.